Mark 15, I will be reading verses 16 through 32. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. And the soldiers led him, that is Jesus, away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to be crucified. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also, the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. In the name of the Father, the Son, In the Holy Spirit, may he bless the reading and preaching of his word this morning. Now, depending on who you speak to, one of the most important and one of the most joyous events for any nation that is governed by a monarchy is the coronation ceremony. This is when the king or queen is crowned and sits on his or her throne as the sovereign of that nation. In fact, we will be witnessing a coronation in just a few months in the coronation of King Charles III in the UK. Now, the coronation does not mark the beginning of the king's reign. Legally, he was king before the coronation. And when it comes to Jesus, he was already reigning as king even at his birth. Now, during the coronation ceremony, though not in this exact order... The sovereign is anointed, crowned, invested with royal regalia, and walks a long procession to his throne. The king is presented to the people, the king swears oaths, then the people pay homage to the king. Ironically, in a twisted way, much of this occurs in our text this morning. In a sense, this was Jesus' earthly coronation. But it was a coronation unlike any that the world has ever seen. It wasn't a joyous coronation, and it wasn't a record of the people accepting and praising their king, but rejecting their king. It was the opposite of what we expect to see in a coronation ceremony. It was a mock coronation. But this ceremony began back in chapter 14 when 
Jesus was anointed to be the priest king, not by a man of noble status, but by a woman and a sinner of low status. And now he is crowned and invested. He makes a long procession. He is enthroned and he receives his homage, or should I say, he is mocked. So first he is crowned and invested. This occurs right after Jesus is led away to be scourged. If he survived the scourging, it was meant to humiliate and weaken him so the crucifixion wouldn't last. After this, the Roman soldiers led him away outside the walls of Jerusalem, as was their custom. Remember, Jesus is the scapegoat who carries away the sins of his people and his body into the wilderness, outside the camp, outside the temple gates. They bring him inside Herod's palace where the governor's headquarters was located and they called together the whole battalion to take part in Christ's humiliation. This would have consisted of one-tenth of the Roman legion which was about 600 to 1,000 soldiers. So this wasn't a small audience as it is often depicted in the movies. To them, it was a stage show, and Jesus' coronation ceremony was the main act. They begin by investing him with royal regalia. They clothed him in a purple cloak or robe, a color reserved for royalty, which would be draped over his torn flesh. Then they crowned him, not with a golden crown, bedecked with jewels, but a crown of thorns that they twisted together and placed it on his head. And they also placed a reed in his hand, according to Matthew 27. It was a crown and a scepter for the king. We're not sure from the text what plant the thorns came from, but from tradition, some believe that the thorns came from the same type of tree that the Jews believe would have been the tree of the burning bush. That is the jujube tree. The same bush that God used to reveal himself to Moses is now used in the revelation of his son. Now he was alone and humiliated. And to add to it, they began to salute him, similar to how they salute Caesar. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with the reed, possibly the reed that he had in his hand, and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him, all out of mockery. But the ironic thing was that this was indeed the king of the Jews. And not only the king of the Jews, but he was also their king. He was the king of kings and lord of lords and they couldn't see it. Jesus, who is the light of the world, was surrounded by darkness. This was their way of rejecting his kingship. While at the same time, get some entertainment out of it. What a sad display of unbelief. This king should have been praised, honored, and worshipped, but instead he was abused, humiliated, and mocked. But this sort of violent mockery is this common reaction from those whose minds have been darkened by sin without the enlightening of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' ministry was spent confronting the people with his identity and exposing sinners to their sin And naturally, the darkness fought back. But the good news is, 
that the darkness will not and cannot overcome the light. And when they had enough entertainment, they stripped him of his purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And according to John's gospel, it was at this point that Pilate brings Jesus out again to show the Jews. See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. It was a way to say, is this punishment enough for you? But no, they continue to cry out, crucify him, crucify him. So that is what they did. The soldiers led him out to crucify him. Secondly, this leads to Jesus' long procession to his throne. In any procession that we have seen, the royal sovereign is expected to carry himself with strength. With his shoulders back, chest out, and heads up. Here is a different scene altogether. In this procession, our Lord was weak. Weakened to the point that he couldn't even carry his own cross. So they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now, it is important to stop here to consider this character, Simon, and what this occasion means for him. Simon was from a place called Cyrene, which was located in North Africa. He was also called Niger, which means black or dark-skinned. And he is mentioned in the book of Acts, chapter 13, verse 1, as a prophet or teacher. So this means he was converted at some point. Uh, One of his sons, Rufus, is mentioned in Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 16, verse 13. So Mark here mentions his sons because he and the rest of the apostles knew them. And this would make sense since this gospel was believed to be written to the Christians in Rome. So understand what is going on here. Jesus is drawing people to himself even in his weakest moment. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the wise and to shame the strong. He was reigning as the sovereign Lord who calls his people to himself even during his suffering. This one moment when Simon was compelled to carry Jesus' cross would change his life for eternity. It would lead to his salvation and the salvation of his own family. And Simon would help him carry the cross to the place called Calvary. That's in Latin. Or here it says Golgotha, which means the place of a skull in Aramaic. There are many theories behind this name. One theory is that it was a rocky hill that had the appearance of a skull. Another theory is that there were a number of tombs located in the area, so plenty of skulls. One theory is that the skull of Goliath is buried underneath the hill, which some believe would fulfill the prophecy of the seed of the woman, bruising the head of the serpent, because Jesus' nailed feet would rest right above his skull. Another theory is simply that it was a place of execution. Also, many believe this is the same location as Mount Moriah, which is where God told Abraham to bring Isaac his only beloved son, to be sacrificed. But God stopped him 
and provided a sacrifice himself. It was a ram caught in a thicket. A ram is a male adult sheep and a thicket is a dense group of bushes which would most likely have thorns where the ram was caught. So God was telling Abraham, I will provide a sacrifice and he will be my only son, not yours. And this is what he did in the presumed same location close to 2,000 years later. But whatever the theory is, we're not exactly sure. It is the location where Jesus completes his work of atonement for his people, where he was crucified in the place of sinners. So thirdly, his crucifixion would be his earthly enthronement. For the Jews, this crucifixion was commanded from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 to 23, that if a man committed a crime punishable by death, in this case, blasphemy, they are to hang him on a tree, and he would be considered a cursed man. For Rome, crucifixion was used to warn people not to rebel against authority. It was reserved for capital crimes, especially crimes of treason or sedition. And when it comes to pain, it was probably the worst form of execution. So they offer him wine mixed with myrrh, which functions as a narcotic or a drug to dull his senses so that he would not be in so much pain. But he didn't take it. He didn't take it because he willingly chose to suffer and take on all of God's wrath for his people without dilution. And he was crucified at the third hour, that is 9 a.m. His hands would have been nailed right above his wrists to the horizontal wooden beam, while his feet would have been nailed one on top of the other to the vertical beam. The nail would pierce through the top of one foot out the heel of the other. And this would fulfill what was prophesied in Genesis 3.15. That the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. And the serpent would bruise his heel. In this form of capital punishment, if you don't die from the trauma or from the wounds, you would die from suffocation. The only way to catch your breath is to push up with your legs. But that would cause severe pain in your back and your lower body. So eventually you would slump into a sitting position to relieve that pain. But again, it would render you breathless from the weight of your body pulling down while you hang by your arms until you eventually suffocate. It is a horrible way to die, to say the least. And while Jesus hung on the cross on his earthly throne, the soldiers divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take, fulfilling Psalm 22. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. That is, he can count all his bones through his torn flesh. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. 
Notice how exact the description is. Word for word. Up until this point, Jesus' identity has been veiled, partly because they had the wrong idea of who the Messiah really was. They were expecting the Son of Man of Daniel 7, who would come with power and glory, but not the suffering servant of Isaiah, who came to address the problem of sin, death, and Satan. And this is the charge that they brought against him to Pilate. They charged him for claiming to be king over against Caesar. And it was quite ironic because he is crucified between two quote-unquote robbers. One on his right and one on his left. If you recall, James and John once demanded that Jesus grant that they sit, one at his right and one at his left, in his glory. But Jesus responded, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? This is what Jesus was talking about. And if James and John saw this, I wonder if they would have remembered what Jesus said to them as they saw two thieves crucified, one on each side. And the irony is that these were not just thieves. Remember, crucifixion was reserved for capital crimes of treason and sedition. And the word used for robbers or thieves here oftentimes renders as insurrectionist. So if that's the case, he was crucified between two political rebels as a political rebel himself. And now for the first time, his identity is displayed for all to see and read. It was no longer veiled. See, it was a custom for Rome to nail an inscription of the charge above the criminal's head. What was Jesus' crime? What was he charged with? According to John, Pilate would write an inscription in Aramaic, Latin, and in Greek so all who were there could read. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Well, that made the Jews upset. They told him not to write this, but to write, This man said... I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. In other words, Pilate wrote it on purpose to mock their false charge against him. But notice how God uses unbelievers to get his message across. Because although it was written out of mockery to the Jews, it was still the truth. Whether the witness believed the claim or not, all were confronted with the truth that day. By God's sovereign providence, they were confronted with the gospel, and they were confronted with a Jesus who was not only a suffering savior, but who was also their king and judge. What was their response? Well, it is the same response that we see all over this darkened world. So fourthly, he receives his homage, and I put that in quotations. We hear from three groups of people. Those who passed by, the chief priests and the scribes, and thirdly, even the robbers who were crucified with him. But it was as if Satan was using these people because you can hear Satan's voice tempting Jesus once again 
just as he tempted him in the wilderness after 40 days and 40 nights. He uses these voices to taunt our God. Beloved, his voice is still around today. That voice still taunts the children of God who believe in a crucified Messiah. And notice how they attack his whole person and his three offices of prophet, priest, and king. First, those passing by derided him as a prophet. The word for derided is taken from the word to blaspheme. And they were wagging their heads. This was to fulfill again Psalm 22. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And they said, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. But they were misinformed. Because he never proclaimed that he would destroy the physical temple, but that his bodily temple, his body would be destroyed. And he will raise it up in three days. Secondly, the chief priests and scribes mocked his office as a priest, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. They would even mock him using the words of scripture, according to Matthew chapter 27. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. Notice that Psalm 22 again, verse 8. For he said, I am the son of God. Sounds like Satan himself, doesn't it? Questioning his identity as the son of God in the wilderness. They charged him with blasphemy, and yet they were the ones who were blaspheming. But Jesus wasn't here to save himself. If he came down from that cross, no one would be saved. This is why the message of the cross is still important today as it was back then. This is why the cross is still the central message of the Christian faith. We cannot be saved without the atonement of sin. For Christ crucified in the place of sinners is the only way we can be saved. We cannot be saved by being good people and doing good things because we're not good people by nature. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Without Jesus on the cross, there is no hope of salvation whatsoever. He wasn't here to save himself, but to save others. And that's what they didn't quite understand. But ask yourself, what is the point of the cross? What was all the suffering and rejection for if it was not to save others? Thirdly, they also mocked him as a king, saying, let the Christ, the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. He declared himself to be king from the beginning of his ministry when he proclaimed, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Because the king is at hand. But his rule and reign in his earthly ministry would be marked by suffering and end in his death. And they demanded another sign, even though he has given them many signs. He raised people from the dead. He healed people of their diseases. He made the blind see and the deaf hear. 
How many more signs did they need? That's why Paul says of them, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Notice also the robbers who hung there on either side of him also reviled him. For a bit of clarity, we can refer to Luke. As he reveals to us, they may have both reviled him at one point, but it seems that one of them had a change of heart. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Out of the two robbers, one was saved. See, there is grace and light throughout this evil and dark moment. As Christ hung there on the cross, he was still calling his people to himself. He called them to see and witness that he was indeed the Passover lamb who was slaughtered on the day of Passover to make a way of salvation for his people, to make a way for their new exodus. As he hung there on the cross between two thieves and the soldiers were casting lots for his garments, he fulfills Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He did just that as he interceded for them on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I wonder if that was what one of the thieves heard that the Lord used to change his heart. I wonder if any of his enemies heard the grace of our Lord when he said this. Now consider that this text is here so that we would respond to it. You heard their response in his triumphal entry. All hailed him as king and now they mock him as king. Their response was complete rejection. If only they knew. If only they listened when he proclaimed the holiness of God. If only they listened when he proclaimed the gospel of free forgiveness. Jesus spoke of this day for three years in his earthly ministry, going back to chapter 2, verse 20, when he mentioned that he would be taken away. This was the point of his entire earthly life. See, they were so close to the gospel. It was right in front of their eyes, yet they rejected it. So what is going to be our response to a king who is crucified? To a king who sat slumped on his earthly throne made of two wooden beams. Shouldn't it be with full acceptance and praise? For without the cross, there is no hope of salvation from sin, death, and Satan. Our sin was nailed to that cross 
And now we stand righteous before God, even though we are not. This is the message we need today. Christ crucified. What seemed to be victory for the Jews as they falsely charged him and had him hung on the cross was actually victory for you and me. But is this still the message of the church universal today? Or will our message be one of self-improvement or worldly success? I believe we have been bombarded with messages about human empowerment, worldly glory, and other agendas rather than messages about the cross because it's not a popular message. It begins with God's holiness and how he hates sin. And sin is not just, oh, everyone makes mistakes. Sin is treason against God, a God who deserves complete obedience and worship. And this sin deserves eternal death and damnation. Sin is serious. What we see in the cross, first and foremost, is the holiness of God. Also, the cross is about God the Son, who took on flesh, emptied himself of his kingly rights, lived a lowly life, and died for his people to remove their sins, to make them acceptable to a holy God. Sinners do not want to hear about a king who suffered and died in the flesh as his way of claiming victory for his people. They say it is weak. It is powerless. It cannot change anything. We're always after worldly thrones. People want to hear about glory here and now, not suffering, not the cross. Beloved, the majority of Protestant Christianity today that we hear on the radio and on the TV, on the news, in the media, is the prosperity gospel. It is heresy. It is a false teaching. It is not the message of the cross. Because the cross is folly to the Gentiles, as Paul said. It is laughable. It is a cause of mockery. But with all this darkness that we see today, we don't need to hear messages about empowerment and how to restore some past worldly glory. We need to hear Christ crucified for sinners. When has that message changed? Because Christ and His cross is the only message that bears that power to save and transform a soul. The message of the cross is our only source of comfort. It's the only source of comfort for those whose consciences are so weighed down by their sins. Not moralism, not a well-run society, not a well-run community or family, not a well-governed life. Those are fruits of it, but that is not the source of comfort. Our source of comfort is in the cross. Unfortunately, like the crowd expected a different Messiah, the crowds today are expecting a different message. Besides, Christ was nailed to a cross in the place of sinners. Yes, that is how severe your sin is. 
That is how much God hates sin. And at the same time, the cross displays how much our God loves His people. In the cross, we see how God's holiness and His love come together. And they cannot be separated. Remember when the Israelites were going through the wilderness, just as we are going through the wilderness of this world, and they began to complain. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many died. Then the people went to Moses and confessed that they had sinned and asked him to intercede for them. So he did, and the Lord told him to make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who was bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And all who were bitten looked at the serpent and lived. How did Jesus interpret that text? How did Jesus apply it? Well, he applied it to himself. He said, that bronze serpent on the pole, that's me. He says this, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... So must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Now most of us, when we read that text, we're thinking, that's His ascension. He's being lifted up to His throne. But no, the lifting up is talking about Him being lifted up on a pole or a cross, so that when we look to Him and believe, we may have eternal life. Paul said to the Galatians when they were believing the Judaizers who were trying to add to the Christian gospel, who who were trying to go back to the Mosaic covenant and impose circumcision, he said, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. For Paul and for the early church, it was all about Christ crucified. This would lead Paul to say this. But far be it from me to boast. Not in what I achieved. Nor in circumcision. Nor in law keeping. Nor in my ethnicity. Or my national ties to Israel. But far be it from me to boast. Except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By which the world has been crucified to me. And I to the world. Paul wanted the cross of Christ to be the center of everything. Not only for his atonement and forgiveness, but also to be the source of new life and sanctification. Because new life begins with the death of Christ. So when we look to the cross, we are not only to see our forgiveness, but also our new way of living. Because it is through this work of the cross That Jesus has ushered in his new creation. And if you believe in him, you will be made new. New creatures. New servants who take up your cross. And walk this long procession to glory. Amen.